0: So, as you are well familiar, if you've been following the series of thought experiments thus far, we have been dealing with the history of thought experiments, starting all the way from uh, the era before the Roman times, going through through the Dark Ages, and then emerging out in the Renaissance through the 1800s. And now finally, we've broken through the 1800s with uh, the Poincaré conjecture, and now burst forth into the 20th century the golden age of thought experiments, and the golden age of science as well. So we've broken through to the 1900s and we've come to the era and time of the master of thought experiments himself, the famed Albert Einstein. So this week's thought experiment will be dealing with Einstein's two theories of relativity. We've scored a bonus and we will be covering both the general and special relativity theories. Uh, but first, a little background on the history of the, the theories themselves. Not delving too deep into Einstein's biography, because there's most recently been a very large book written on him, and I don't want to bore you with 700 pages of, not exactly bore, but you know, more detail than we would be willing to cover on such a quaint little podcast. Einstein was working as a patent clerk in Bern, Switzerland, when the idea supposedly of general relativity came to him. He had lots of free time to mull things over. Oftentimes he would get several of these uh, patent papers done so he would al- have a lot of free time uh, towards the end of his shift for the day to just go over his scientific papers and things whenever a supervisor would come by. He'd have to throw them under his desk, but Einstein was sitting in his patent clerk office when he supposedly saw a guy fall off the roof, nearby, and survive. And he came to what is known as general relativity. Though this story is much like Newton's apple, where Newton's sitting underneath the, the apple tree, and the apple falls in front of him onto his lap, and he says, Oh, gravity! You know, It's just a famed tale that doesn't have any real backing to it, but it's a fun story nonetheless. Special relativity, however, he came through intense concentration over many years of his early life, stemming from his late teens through his early 20s and throughout his life to his 30s and, and so on, to where he had, uh, had actually published his, uh, his paper on the electrodynamics of moving bodies.
1: So, first, uh, let's start out with the general theory of relativity relativity. And one of the important things about the general theory of relativity is actually something that seems like it should be common sense, but is actually extremely important to state before we go any further. And that is that all laws of physics are the same as per the reference frame. So no matter from where you're observing, no matter where the reference point is, uh, the laws of physics will be the same. And while this seems like it should be common sense, yes, yes, that makes, you know, perfect total sense, why do we even need to state it? Uh, As you'll see later on, and especially if you uh, delve further into relativity, uh, it becomes a very important thing to keep in mind otherwise uh, some of the thought experiments break down and you start running into problems or it's something that you need to keep in mind otherwise you start going off into complete nonsense. Uh, Scott will Uh, Continue on uh, the lecture of what general relativity is in in detail.
0: In terms of general relativity, there are things called inertial reference frames, which, pretty much to sum up, is a frame of reference in which you are in motion, but you don't really realize you're in motion. So, take for example, in our modern world of technology, as opposed to Einstein's world where he was using a train in his thought experiment, we'll use an airplane so airplanes we know go really fast through the air 500 miles an hour on average from Seattle to Chicago or Chicago to Tokyo or wherever you may be listening from they go super super fast but while you're on an airplane you don't really seem to notice that you're going very fast you look out the window you see the clouds strolling by very slowly because you're so high up for one but you can get up from your seat and you can walk down the aisle down to the bathroom and you can walk back, and you won't feel like you're going 500 miles an hour, or 498 miles an hour, or 502 miles an hour. It's all relative, to, so to speak. So what do we mean by inertial reference frame? In this case, in the airplane case, you are in an, in an inertial reference frame. On the airplane, if you were to get up from first class and you see your friend all the way back in coach, if you were to throw a baseball to him, you would notice that the baseball went normally as it should. Follows a parabolic arc from your hand to your friend's hand, no big deal. What would it look like to the bird that was flying outside of the airplane, flying in the opposite direction from the airplane, who saw through the windows from first class to coach, saw you throw your baseball to your friend? Well, needless to say, without going into any super specific, mind-crushing details, it would look sort of different to the bird, as you throw the ball from your hand to your friend, the bird would see you, in first class, moving, let's say, to the right, and your friend and coach also moving to the right, so you two are equidistant, and also moving with respect to key term, the bird. As you throw the ball, the bird notices the ball jump up out of your hand, and stay relatively in Motionless in the air As the plane flies by it And your friend catches it But this seems totally contradictory In the airplane you Consciously and were very observant In throwing the ball from you to your friend But what the bird sees Is the ball is motionless And sees everything around it Moving
1: With This the is of course assuming that You're either throwing the ball at 500 miles an hour Or the plane is moving at only 80 And you're throwing the ball at 80 miles an hour
0: in terms of inertial reference frames, Einstein also uses another thought experiment in which if you were inside a big giant chest, we'll say a treasure chest out in deep intergalactic space so no gravity is acting around you, you'd, why, you'd be floating around in the chest, right? So imagine if God punches a hole through the universe and grabs a string that's attached to the top of the chest. Now, granted, there's nothing else in the universe except God punching his mighty hand through the universe's space-time wall and then grabbing the uh, the string on top of the chest. He pulls on the chest, and as you're inside, you feel what you would assume to be gravity. I mean, you feel the chest pushing up beneath you, and because of this, you have a, a balance of forces in which we won't go into free-body diagrams at all for, for my sake and Andrew's sake and everyone else's sake. Um... But it creates a false sense of gravity by inertial movement. You are in movement while you're also accelerating, too, which produces the the pseudo-gravitational force. But this force creates what's sort of a gravitational well in the same way that normal matter does, hence inertial reference frames. So where where is this ultimately leading to? general theory of relativity, as posed by Einstein, is one of the greatest and most tested, hypothetically correct theories ever presumed, ever surmised by any living or dead physicist known to man, aside from Newton almost. To get down to what the general theory of relativity says, minus all of the mathematics of metric tensor calculus, ...is that space and time are are Contiguous? That's a hard word to say. Yeah, that space and time are contiguous. Contiguous meaning all together or melded together all the same. This has been confirmed by observation of stars, light, being bent by the sun during a total solar eclipse. If you can imagine, and this is, again, another thought experiment we're dealing with tons and tons of thought experiments in this, in this program, so it's a rich treasure trove to read up on Einstein, and also his, rel- his uh, relativity theories, that if you imagine like a trampoline, or a big rubber sheet, and if you imagine the sun as a bowling ball in the center of the sheet, well, if you were to fire a marble from one end of the trampoline to the other, but kind of arced off to the side so it doesn't come in and hit the bowling ball directly, you aim it off to the side, say 10 degrees or so, and you shoot it. It'll go across the trampoline, but it'll bend inward towards the, the bowling ball a little bit, and then it'll come back out on the other side, sort of. And depending on the angle from which you view it, it'll seem like it came from another side. So, during a total solar eclipse, the moon perfectly blocks out the sun, And it essentially becomes nighttime, so you can see the stars. Arthur Eddington confirmed Einstein's predictions that light from certain stars around the sun, mind you, it's nighttime, would be bent by the sun's gravitational well, quote-unquote, also known as the bowling ball in the trampoline, where the bowling ball is the sun. Distant stars shoot marbles of light that get bent around the bowling ball and sent back to us. So what we see on Earth is that some stars should be behind the sun, but we see them off to the side of the sun somehow. And this has to do with those arcing paths that we just talked about earlier, where as the marble comes around from the other side of the sun and we see it, it looks like it came from a straight line at a tangent to the sun as opposed to an arc around it. So instead of Arcturus being directly behind the sun, we'll say, it looks like it's off to the side, because it gets bent around this funky, weird halo of gravitational smymph around this star, in this case our sun, and it looks like it's coming off to the side. Space-time continuum. Space-time fabric.
1: Uh, so I'll read the whole thing. Uh, the results of the last three sections so that the apparent incompatibility of the law of propagation of light with the principle rel- of relativity has been derived by a means of a consideration which borrowed two unjustifiable hypotheses from classical mechanics these are as followed uh, the time interval between two events is independent of the condition of motion of body of reference the space interval between two con- points on a rigid body is independent of the condition of motion of the body of reference if we drop these hypotheses then the dilemma of section seven disappears <coughs> because of the theorem of the addition of velocities derived in section six becomes invalid the possibility presents itself that the law of propagation of light in vacuo may be compatible with the principle of relativity. And the question arises, how, how, how have we to modify the considerations of Section 6 in order to remove the apparent disagreement between the two fundamental results of experience? This question leads to a general, general one. In the discussion of Section 6, we have to do with places and times relative both to the train and to the embankment. How are we to find the place and time of an event in relation to the train when we know the place and time of the event with respect to the railway embankment? Is there a thinkable answer to this question of such a nature that the law of transmission of light in vacuo does not contradict the principle of relativity? In other words, can we conceive of a relation between the place and time of the individual events relative to both reference bodies, such that every ray of light possesses the velocity of transmission C relative to the embankment and relative to the train. This question leads to a quite definite positive answer and to a perfectly definite transformation law for the space-time magnitudes of an event when changing over one body of reference to another. Before we deal with this, we shall introduce the following incidental, incidental consideration. Up to the present, we have only considered events taking place along the embankment, which had mathematically to assume the function of a straight line. In the manner indicated in Section 2, we can imagine this reference body supplemented laterally and in a vertical direction by means of a framework of rods, so that an event which takes place anywhere can be localized with reference to this framework. Similarly, we can imagine the train traveling with velocity v to be continued across the whole of space, so that every event, no matter how far off it may be, could also be localized with respect to the second framework, without committing any fundamental error we can disregard the, f- the fact that in reality these frameworks would continually interfere with each other owing to the incompatibility of solid bodies. In every such framework, we imagine three surfaces perpendicular to each other marked out and designated as coordinate planes. A coordinate system K then corresponds to the embankment and a coordinate system K' prime to the train, an event wherever it may have taken place would be fixed in space with respect to k by the three perpendiculars x, y, z on the coordinate planes and with regard to time by the time value t. Relative to k prime, the same event would be fixed in respect of time and space, or space and time, by corresponding x prime, y prime, z prime, and t prime, which are not identical with x, y, z, and t. Okay. Uh... It has already been set forth in detail how these magnitudes are to be regarded as results of physical measurements. Obviously, a problem can be formulated in the following manner: What are the values of x prime, y prime, z prime, and t prime of an event with respect to k prime when the magnitudes x, y, z, and t of the same event with respect to k are given? The relations must also be so chosen. Uh, the relations must be so chosen that the law of transmission of light in vacuum is satisfied for one and the same ray of light and of course for every with respect to k and k prime for the relative orientation and space of the coordinate systems indicated in the diagram figure 2 this problem is solved by the means of the equations x prime equals x minus vt over the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared y prime equals y z prime equals z t prime equals t minus v over c squared times x over the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared this system of equations is known as the Lorentz transformation light always travels at the same speed relative to the observer it must change the measuring stick that it uses to measure that speed Uh, in order to keep the speed, the observable speed, as being the same uh, then the length of objects that you observe to be moving past you must contract and so must their time, uh, because in order for c to remain constant, v and t, velocity or uh, <clears throat> d and t, d- distance and time, must physically
0: change so that the other side. So those equations, in terms of dealing with this mass and energy funkiness, where the faster and faster you approach the speed of light, the shorter in length you become in the direction of travel, the higher your time goes up, and the more massive you become, leads to a very real and distinct phenomenon. First of which is GPS uh, satellite synchronization. In which case, because GPS satellites are moving at such a high speed above the Earth, in geosynchronous orbit or what have you, they have to account for the fact of time dilation. That the actual satellites tracking your car with if you have the GPS navigation system selected for your your limited edition whatever it is, that the actual satellites tracking your car are contracting in length such that we actually have to account for it. Otherwise you'll be off by a foot or two in some bizarre direction we'll say. Now this has a lot more fundamentals behind it than we might have originally thought. E equals MC squared conjures up images of atom bombs, and we'll get to that in a second. But one very interesting application of this is potential and kinetic energies. So if you raise a ball above your head, or whatever, and you let it go, we know that the potential energy converts itself into kinetic energy, and it starts flying into the ground and bounces off the ground, or what have you. All the normal physics and all the normal stuff. But what happens when we set our reference frame at the top? Well, the energy becomes negative, if you can imagine this, and as it accelerates towards the Earth, you get more and more of this negative energy. The negative sign is associated with the direction of the coordinate system. But because of where we've placed our coordinate system initially, with this coordinate system at the very top where it begins as opposed to where it ends, we can measure how much mass the ball loses in terms of falling through the gravitational field. Now, getting back to those inertial reference frames earlier, if we were to drop the ball, let's say from arm height above us, down, it loses mass. Now, this is very, very bizarre. Now, how can a baseball lose mass as it falls down? Where does the mass go, and how does this happen? Well, E equals MC squared is technically... E equals delta m c squared. We just leave off the delta for general use. Delta is a very commonly used symbol in mathematics and also physics that denotes a change. So energy, E, equals a change in mass, delta m, times the speed of light, c squared. So what this means is that because there's a change in mass, we have an energy associated with it that propels the object from its inertial frame So Andrew, what exactly can Einstein tell us about special relativity in his own words? Mass. So little mass we would never be able to detect it Only through this algebraic formulation which Einstein himself derived we can actually tell that it is losing mass So if you cry over your spilled milk that you knocked over the counter you shouldn't really cry because you didn't really spill that much milk It did lose a little bit of mass from the countertop but not so much that we can really tell. Because c squared is such a huge number, and that the kinetic energy is a more or less workable, manageable number, oftentimes in kilogram meters per second squared, but often in, in units and things that we can measure and handle with with two hands as opposed to truckloads of numbers and scientific notation. Because it's such a small amount of kinetic energy, we have a tiny, tiny little mass that times the speed of light C squared equals its kinetic energy. So this energy and mass equivalence equation, E equals delta M C squared, is also applicable for nuclear warfare. So in the workings of an atom bomb, we have the what's called subcritical uranium. Doesn't really matter what we call it, let's just call it a big blob of radioactive goo that's just on the verge of going absolutely nutso and exploding. So what happens when it does go nutso and violently explodes is that when it goes through this cascade of hilarious proportions its mass a very small amount of it a fraction but still large enough to account for all this energy released gets converted through this equation through E equals mc squared a little bit of uranium from this mass itself has a ton of energy pent up inside of it CDs, mouse pads, iPods, if you were to convert those all into pure energy, we wouldn't need fossil fuels, we wouldn't need all this dependence on foreign oil, or hell, even solar energy given given that, if we were to somehow convert mass from its very high energy density state that it's in, into some sort of more manageable energy that we could use, we wouldn't need all these forms of power that are polluting the environment and all these This one equation, E equals MC squared Has the sole power To revolutionize How we deal with each other And how we deal with uh, Communications and also Social interactions on the basis of Energy or tradesmanship or what have you But it also has to do with nuclear warfare And the ending of that very civilization And what
1: E equals MC squared means Is that All matter is energy And all energy Is matter So the examples that he used, if you look at something, look at the wall of your room. What you're looking at, yes, it's matter, but it's also energy. It's the same stuff that powers your lights. And the lights, the stuff that powers your lights, the electricity, that's the same stuff that makes up the lights. It's all interchangeable. Energy is mass, energy is matter, and matter is energy. The light in your room is not only energy, but it can be converted straight into matter. Because it's all the same. Yeah, cool. Good podcast. Yeah, you had some really good phrases in there. pretty cool. <laughs> I really liked the radioactive the technical time. Radioactive